We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And don't forget to take a peek at the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, Good Scott. to see you morning, all. Scott. Spring is here. It is. Yes. Can you feel it? Yep. Oh, uh, yeah. Minus one. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> all right. Uh, gifting assets. There's some risks involved we need to talk about here. Last week, I started to tell the story oh, a little right. bit about Johnson versus Song and a recent court case that uh, dealt with gifting of assets. And mm-hmm. just a little bit of background on the story, but I'll just, uh, I wanted to uh, start off the show today, just sort of wrapping that that sort of that story up, and the the whole purpose of this. And the article was titled uh, "Court Case Reveals the Risks in Gifting Assets." And so, uh, in in um, February of this year, 2018, a decision was made in the courts regarding a situation or a case called Johnson versus Song. And uh, so I just, I'll just I'll read a little bit just to the background of wh- who we're talking about and what the situation was that, uh, that, that brought forward this issue around gifting. So the decision, Johnson versus Song, it was handed down in mid-February. February, it demonstrates what can happen when your assets are transferred to meet a family goal, but which lead to unintended results. Hmm. And in the case, so the father transferred ownership of his home into joint ownership with his partner. And his partner, who is also the mother of his child, okay, and the spouse is never married. Mm-hmm. So we're in a common law relationship and they had a child together and father owned the home and decides to transfer. The transfer took place in December, 2016. And the father said at the trial that he did so to allay the mother's fears that she and her child would be, in quote, out on the street should something happen to him. Mm -hmm. And in January 2017, a month later, the mother announced she was leaving him. Ooh. (laughs) Oh, there's a big sigh in the audience. (laughs) Who's leaving who on the street here? Yeah. So the father had purchased the home in 2003. And began living with his uh, common-law spouse in 2005. At the trial, the father claimed that he had not intended to make a no-strings-attached, in quotes, gift, and claimed that the transfer should be treated as a resulting trust, and I'll explain to that in a second, Mm. because his spouse paid nothing for the property. Mm. Uh, Under the rules of such trusts, the person receiving title to property holds it in trust for the benefit of the person transferring title, blah, blah, blah. Basically, a resulting trust is a situation where, and we see this a lot in our our older clientele, as people think about how am I going to pass money on to the next generation. So an adult, a a widowed mother, decides she wants to add her daughter as joint owner. And so the court cases are filled with situations like this where the mother wasn't intending to give the money to the daughter. Mm-hmm. She was just doing this for estate planning purposes and for administration. So the daughter was on the account for joint. She could deal with paying bills or something like that. But then at her death, that money that was in joint is considered to be a resulting trust, meaning that the daughter was simply looking after it 
in anticipation at her death that it would then be part of the estate and distributed based on the will. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't going to be the daughter's money. Right. So that's the same thing with this house. He thought his argument was resulting trust. It's basically in you for, in your name for estate purposes and planning. But at the end of the day, whatever that money uh, results in would be part of my estate. Mm -hmm. So that was his position in the court case. However, if a gift is established, no such trust is created. So in this case, so let's say the, the aged mother, the widow decides she'll write down, you know what, my daughter, putting her in joint ownership. But in writing with her lawyer, she says this is intended as a gift. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it would go directly to her, right? So he says that uh, if a gift is established, no such trust is created. And despite the timing of the transfer, right? <laughs> Set it up in December and then she decides yeah. to leave him in January. What a coincidence. Um, yeah, I know. Despite the timing of the transfer, the court held that the transfer was intended as a gift and that the father could not change his mind. Wow. And the court ordered that the home be sold as the mother had requested. Mm. So she wanted her half of the money wow. out of the home. Wow. And so the court decision obviously raises some decisions and uh, raises questions about what kind of alternative strategies could Johnson have used in this case and the father to, uh, to accomplish what he wanted to do. And in most scenarios like this, um, the first thing you might consider would be an insurance policy. Right, so she was concerned that they would be left high on the on the street if right. he died. Great, let's put an insurance policy into place, X amount mm -hmm. of dollars that funds you for the remainder of our child's sort of growing years yeah. until they become independent. Uh, plus, maybe an income that might be able to be generated for life. So, life insurance is certainly a great place to start. Many times, though, people um, can't get life insurance or perhaps you get raided uh, and the cost becomes prohibitive in terms of a solution. And so the house becomes an easy one because you don't have to really have to do anything. Yeah. Right? There's no yeah. cost involved mm -hmm. other than just change of uh, joint ownership. Yeah. So that's a simple thing that people go to. Uh, so insurance involves underwriting, getting your medicals done. Um, are you eligible, basically? Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. would be a first place to start. So let's say you're not eligible and you can't get life insurance. What would you consider next? And the next thing would definitely be uh, something in your will. Mm -hmm. And typically you would create a trust. And the trust would be sort of like what we call a life interest trust. Um, you know, we're not lawyers, but basically in terms of the framework of it, you would want the concept would be that the uh, common law spouse and their, their child would have a life interest in the home. So as long as they were alive, they could stay in the home, continue to benefit from it. And then at their death, uh, or if they decided to sell it, then maybe the proceeds would be distributed to other individuals along the way as well. So, um, you know, probably the child at the end of the day, if you were going to set that up as a trust. And, um, and, and the other strategy would be to create, instead of adding the person as joint owner, making it in the form of a loan as a gift. Mm -hmm. So it would be, you know, I'm, we value the home, here's what it's worth, uh, you know, we could loan somebody money, but this, in this case, um, you know, it probably makes sense. The first thing the guy should have done is seen a lawyer, yeah, mm -hmm. the yeah, bottom yeah. line, Absolutely. see a lawyer, uh, talk to your financial planner. Because why wasn't this done? Why wasn't this done earlier? Exactly. So obviously, um, the discussions had come up, there was procrastinate, 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 uh, she obviously had an agenda, yeah. uh, 
<laughs> He's going to see a lawyer eventually. Don't be so quick to jump, Don. You don't <laughs> I know. know. That's right. You just don't know, Don. <laughs> He's going to see a lawyer eventually. You should have seen one before. And so, but the, another common scenario, and I've had clients call me and say, I want a loan, or sorry, I want a gift. Um, $50,000 to my daughter. Um, they've just gotten married and now they're buying a house. And I'm kind of, well, you can do that. Or maybe it would make sense to set it up as a demand loan. And that in this situation, you're loaning the daughter the 50 grand at 0%. So no interest has to be paid. And the demand loan requires that after, uh, after receiving notification of repayment, they have 30 days to pay the money back. And the benefit of this is that it protects those assets in case of marriage breakdown. Mm -hmm. So the mother can always call back the loan, get the money back. It's not part of family assets in terms of a marriage breakdown or division. Right. And that the, exact same situation happened with a yeah. client of mine, lent money to the, basically it was a wedding gift. Yeah. It was $50,000, yeah. helped to buy the house, bought the house. And, uh, you know, and six months later, unfortunately it didn't work out and they got divorced. Yeah. But now they have a, a, a next daughter-in-law that got $25,000 because wow. then they sold the house yeah. and, it was, and it was just split 50-50 because yeah. it goes into the matrimonial home. Mm -hmm. And a demand loan would have solved that problem. Um, she told me this afterwards and I thought, wow, we could have easily done this. Yeah. And she's never made that mistake for any of her future kids' weddings yeah. um, because they did do exactly that and, and created a loan. Yeah. Promissory note or loan, there's different names for it. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, I'm always fascinated with these cases because I, I see more and more where the issues are from a financial planning standpoint because the courts are filled with cases yeah. around in joint ownership, what was the intent, um, and also in uh, second marriages or second relationships mm. where you're now trying to deal with you know, protecting the interests of your, your children from your first marriage, but you're now also dealing with a spouse and maybe children in a second marriage, and boy, does it c get complex. A lot of emotions and touchy things going yeah. on, so it's very difficult to sort of um, ignore one group mm -hmm. <laughs> and not the other. And but at the same time, it's uh, it's it's dangerous ground from a relationship wow. standpoint. Ever. <laughs> and, and it's yeah. amazing how much work people do to avoid tax, and yeah. rightfully so, because you know you're always trying to look at estate tax or, or or income tax and how to reduce the tax bill, and also just the whole probate scenario of having things to go through probate takes a while. Well, if you can have it in joint ownership, it's a it's a it's a quicker way to quick you know make the whole estate a little easier, mm -hmm. quicken the process up, and if joint ownership would avoid the probate tax, which is about one and a half percent of your assets. So, in a million dollar home, for example, that's fifteen thousand dollars if you can have it jointly owned with somebody. Mm -hmm. And but the problem is, or what is Andy's going is, you basically it's it's a gift, mm -hmm. and it may not be intended, and your will is there for a reason. It's there to say you want your grandkids to have this or you don't want certain people to have your money until they hit a certain age. Well, everything that goes through joint ownership or through a beneficiary avoids the will. Yeah. And once you start to do that, your, your wishes may not be exact. And unfortunately, we are extremely heavily taxed. No denial there. And we do not want to pay that $15,000. It's like a massive speeding ticket. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't take long for the <laughs> government to, to go through the probate. It takes no extra time for a million dollar home or a $50,000 home if there was one. It's the same time. So they actually had to change it from a probate fee to a probate tax because it is truly a tax. Mm -hmm. But I guess you have to um, say, okay, which one do would I rather pay mm -hmm. and which is more important to me? 
and making sure that ex-spouses or future ex-spouses or grandkids or or, or in, particularly in second marriages, that's mm-hmm. when it gets really tricky because you you don't want to ignore your your kids from the first marriage and you may have built up 80% of your wealth from the first marriage. Mm-hmm. And then you get into a second marriage. And I know Andy and I have these conversations going through all the situations from a money standpoint before they even see the lawyer. Hmm. Oh, no. And to think about this guy's case, I mean, oh, if he had seen a lawyer, yeah. uh, he could have just, in the flash of a few, of a paragraph, yes. could have straightened us out. And I don't know, maybe the house was worth half a million dollars. So he just gave away 250 grand yeah. and that was not his intent of course i'm sure he was feel, he, i'm sure he was feeling a little bit spurned by the fact that he did it in december and then she decides no to leave him in january and so he holds, wants to get it all back but. and that holds no that holds no weight at all the fact that this happened one month exactly. and then this no the other. doesn't matter at all no weight at all and he spent a year obviously in court before the decision finally came probably through so what did that cost yeah. he spent the other 250 in trying to fight it <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. 905-529-7165. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future, I think. I'm Scott Thompson along with Andy Lister and Don Fox. Good to see you all, gentlemen. Uh, Everybody enjoying the new time slot. By the way, the show now heard between 8 and 9 a.m. on every Saturday morning. And, of course, uh, we're hoping that you're telling all your friends about that. Also, feel free to contact Don and Andy, 905-529-7165. They will return your call. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's Andy and Don.com. Uh, we're uh, in the era of longevity. How do you not outlive your money? Yes, and this is this is becoming a far greater issue when when the fastest growing rate of our population is now over 100. Yeah, that's something. Now it's mm-hmm. a small base. It may have gone from 4,000 to 8,000, mm-hmm. but that's just you know it used to be uh, front page of the paper. Somebody made it to 100. Yeah, yeah. big deal. Yeah. Uh, now it's like well, well. And I went to uh, you know call it assisted living. In Hamilton, and great place. I got to say, very well, very taken, very well taken care of. My client's ninety-four, hmm. and there was plenty of people in that age group. Yeah, plenty. And I'm thinking, okay, if they didn't have a proper financial plan, how are they going to maintain that lifestyle? Yeah. And this, and I got to say, in, in Hamilton, uh, the cost is about thirty-five hundred a month for this place, mm-hmm. and very well done. And I know you can range and go up to six thousand, or perhaps even more at different places. Certainly worth shopping around yeah. for those people out there. But you hit this magic sixty-five now, and you say, okay, what do I do with my money? Because it was pretty simple before. You had your old age security at sixty-five, so that gave you call it about six hundred dollars a month. You got your Canada pension plan. And that is about 1100 a month if you maximize it all the way through. And in the old days, you got this defined benefit plan. And that carried on. Uh, and, and if you're really lucky, it was indexed. Mm-hmm. So you got this monthly payment of 1000 a month and indexed for life. And all three were indexed. And there you go. Happy retirement. That isn't the case, as we all know. You know most of the plans now are defined contribution. And with a defined contribution plan, you're putting in, say, 5%, they're putting in 5% or 4% or 2.5%, whatever the matching is. And it's a great plan, don't get me wrong, but now you've got to look after the money. Yeah. And, you know, here you are at 65, and the states have got it right because they've come up with longevity insurance. And I love this concept. I, I would honestly, I would recommend this once they come out with this in Canada. And I know the Canadian Life and Health Insurance Association 
has uh, tried to put this into the budget for 2018. He's um, lobbying to the government because what it is, you're putting money in now and it's the deferred annuity. You don't get a payment until age 85. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I think you had this choice between 80 and 85. So you put in a lump sum of money and if you don't make it to 85, you get nothing. It's like CPP. Yeah. <laughs> kind of in a way, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one here, it's it's based on a pool of people's ages. And they put this lump sum in, and a lot of people aren't going to make 85. Mm. So that way you don't have to put as much money in. It's literally like insurance. This might be the way of the future, is it, for this it's, uh, portion yeah. of the population? I think it's great. But you had to make this decision back when you're 65. 65. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so you what, give up the capital now right. in anticipation you get it back later. And it's really peace of mind. So I look at this. So the example that they gave is, let's say you had a $300,000 lump sum at age 65. Well, you could take $36,000 at 65 and get a guaranteed payout at 85 at $21,000 a year, $17.50 a month. And that left you with $264,000 that you now have to put into an investment and draw down. Now, that's kind of the norm. And I said, okay, well, and it's kind of interesting enough, the sales of this product in the States have been definitely increasing. Yeah. They have gained popularity because no, everybody loves a pension. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. Nobody's ever told me, oh, I don't like that pension of mine. Yeah. They all love it. So it's, it's like free money. It's stress-free money. And who doesn't want stress-free money in the first place? But at 85, yeah. it becomes even more important. So it costs a 20-year deferred annuity costs about one-tenth of what it would cost to have an annuity start tomorrow. So if you're 65 and you needed 100,000 to get a certain payout, you only need 10,000 to get the same payout 25 years out. Mm-hmm. Okay? Cuz some people will die and plus your your money's still growing. Yeah. Okay, a mm-hmm. combination of both. So I use an example. Let's say you had 260, you know, your your you had that 36,000 and that got you 1750 a month. Well, that now ha- your remaining 264,000 at 4% and let's say you can now run it out. At, yeah, right to 85. Yeah. yeah. Done. Who cares? Yeah, run it, run the table. You are now, you've got yourself a set payment of $1,600 a month immediately. Mm-hmm. And it runs out at age 85 because you know the other one's going to kick in right. at 85. Right. And again, you, you've got no volatility on the market um, on, on the 85 portion. You still have to worry a bit on investing it properly and sequence of returns and you know, other factors because you are still running your money. Mm-hmm. And if you if you need a lump sum for a car or whatever, that can come out of there. Um, you may have to make adjustments along the way. So you still have to have a financial planner making those decisions mm-hmm. until that point, knowing at 85, you've got this income going to kick in to offset that. So all works out great. You actually end up with no money at age 85 and the new money kicks in. It's well, sort of like a retirement plan for after your retirement plan. It is, Totally. It's yeah. Just, yeah, it's it's exactly that. So the other option, which is what we do. Now we need two plans when you think about it. <laughs> I personally would love this. I think this is a great idea because as a financial planner, my biggest concern for clients and their biggest concern is they don't want to run out of money. But how, who makes, you know, gee, I can imagine, and you know what it's like trying to talk to people about saving money and such. How do you interest somebody in paying something out that they'll receive after 85? Mm. That's well, the risk, right? Many, the ma- yeah. You know, many don't know how they're going to live. I mean, how many are going to say, yeah, 85, no problem. I got a couple of good years between <laughs> 85 and 90. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. good point. But it's kind of interesting. The average 
12-year-old will make it past 90. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and particularly if you have a joint um, life insurance policy, or in this case, a joint longevity insurance policy, because, you know, one may die, but mm-hmm. the other one will make it 85. And then that person, particularly women, to... You see them hits 95 is so common. So what happens if this was introduced in Canada right now, 20 or 25 years from now, once that segment makes it through the population, aren't there going to be more people drawing it than paying into it? Well, they already put the money into it. Yeah. Okay. So their own money just went in and they're now getting- But now would they not be paying out more than they might? They might. And that's when insurance companies would have to adjust- Raise rates or whatever. The amount you you need now. They may say, okay, you need a larger lump sum at 65 because we found people are living longer now. Right. But they have- People pulling out of the pot. Exactly. And it is a science. They know exactly on average what the longevity is for each Mm -hmm. person. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's all mathematical. But it's interesting. If you took that same 300,000 and, and right now in Canada, we don't have this product. Mm-hmm. And you put it in and you say, I'm going to take 1600 a month now, just like I did in the first example. And at age 85, <clears throat> how much money do I have? Well, I still have 80,000 left. Well, that 85, I'm going to start paying out that 1750, just like this deferred annuity. It will run out by the time that person is 89 in one month. So four years and one month later, four, four years, one month later. Whereas the insurance policy, you don't have to worry about a thing. If you happen, and you're you're looking forward to hitting a hundred, yeah. there, there is <laughs> stress right. for people yeah. to not live that long because say, wow, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have kept yeah. a bit more money aside. Yeah. And there's a lot of financial stress. They're paying you to stay alive. You got it. That's right. <laughs> and it's just odds. Oh, no different than life insurance. Here, we know that um, you know when we buy life insurance, we're betting that um, we are going to. Uh, live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sorry. We're going to, we're betting we're going to die. The insurance company's betting you're going to live. Right. Okay. So the premiums are, into it. Yeah. yeah the, <clears throat> the premiums are pretty cheap for term insurance. In this case, we're betting we want to live yeah. and the insurance company's kind of betting we're going to die. It's the yeah, exact right. opposite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so I think this is, um, yeah, certainly I think any, uh, seniors or CARP or any, um, the, organizations out there should lobby for this product. Mm-hmm. It is purely a mathematical What do you product. think the chances are of it coming to Canada then? Uh, very good. Yeah. Very good. Because it is getting some traction. It was in the paper not long ago. And again, it's even trying to push it into the budgets at this stage. So, Yeah. And it's, that reminds me of the long-term care scenario, which was uh, an insurance product that exists here in Canada, but it really found its origin or originated in South Africa. And then it uh, it gathered steam in the United States, and it's also uh, a requirement. It's a mandatory thing in Japan. Mm. Yet here in Canada, the long-term care, and I think it's because we have a strong health care system in place to support seniors uh, at the point where they need you know, assisted living or long-term care scenario, uh, that the long-term care uh, product hasn't taken off here in Canada. Mm. Uh, whereas it has in the States, we know there's a lot of risks to your medical future. If you, if you need medical help, you're not insured, yeah. you know, the costs of medical coverage in the States can wipe out your estate, wipe out your savings pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it'll be interesting to see if this is this, if this is sort of goes the way of that long-term care policy where it was popular in other countries, but not mm-hmm. necessarily here, uh, or whether it'll be something that I, it makes sense because really the, um, when we look at the enjoyment factor of retirement, 
And what takes away from the enjoyment factor of retirement is that fear of running out of money. And, or am I going to live too long? And so when you replace that with a regular payment, whether it's a pension, defined benefit pension plan, or the product Don's talking about, I could see that brings back quality of life in terms of your mm. enjoyment in retirement, right? And we always talk about underliving. Yeah, and, I was just about to say, how many people yeah. are underliving now on the fear they're going to run out of money? Yeah. That's right. So in your example, you got 300 grand and you're taking 1600 a month. Uh, suddenly you're getting to 85. You only got 80 grand left. Well, most people suddenly would have cut back. Yeah, they would have yeah. said, oh, we can't spend $1,600. we are going to have to drop it down to 1200 So right away, they, they take, just in case. Yeah. It's the just in case yep. mentality. Right away, they take $400 a month out of their lifestyle mm-hmm. because they're, they've got to make it, stre- they got to stretch it out. Right. Right. This takes away that worry about stretching it out. Mm. So it's kind of a nice, yeah. it's an interesting sort of backstop to that longevity issue. Yeah. I think, honestly, dealing in the insurance world because of life insurance, disability insurance, critical care and uh, there's so many different types of insurance that are necessary so that we can live our lives peace of mind. This is just one more stage in income insurance, I think, is this a great idea. And yeah. when you think about it, considering what we've talked about for a long time, which is, you know, centurions being the, the largest growing segment of mm-hmm. the population, clearly something has to give here mm-hmm. uh, because most who are now that age didn't save that much. People who are younger now, are they saving enough to live to 100 or beyond? Right. So it's almost like we need, because we're being, uh, because we're retired, in some cases, longer than we ever worked, it's like yeah. you need you oh, need no question. you need something else there to yeah. to yeah. supplement it all. And and with look at the last you know in the last few months the volatility of the stock market. Mm-hmm. Okay, yet that's necessary to have so much in stocks right now to make four percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. you cannot make four percent if you don't have some volatility in your portfolio. Yet an eighty-five year old, how many really want that yeah. kind of volatility? Yeah. I know I know sixty-five year olds don't like it, but they have no choice. Yeah, by the time you hit eighty-five. It would be such a great idea to have that peace of mind saying, well, I've got to this. I've looked after my portfolio. I'm washing my hands of this. I got my 1750 month coming in now and I don't have any worries. Do you think this will become a necessity simply because how else are we going to pay for these people? I mean, will governments look at this and say, we've got to do something here because people are going to run out of money? Well, and it's interesting because I was saying in Japan, it was mandated that people have to buy long-term care insurance. Mm -hmm. And the purpose was to accommodate looking after people. Either you had a choice, you could either be in your home or in a facility. But uh, basically, instead of the government paying, there was a, a process in place from the time and you're in your 20s, you've mm-hmm. been building this thing, and uh, and then you're going to use it at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I don't know, it it, it it depends, or maybe it gets an add-on to a Canada pension plan or something like yeah, that, yeah. built it in, I, I, mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. Well, you know, it's a, a lot of times, and this is a pretty common scenario for me, and I, I was looking at clients, long-time clients of mine, uh, a couple, and they're both in their 90s. Wow. And recently one of them passed away. In this Here case, we go it again, was, 90s, right? Yeah. yeah. In, in this case, it was the female that passed away first, and the male is the survivor. Three, They had three children, you know, 10 great grandchildren now, and so on it goes. And um, great, great grandchildren, I should say. And um, so we're sort of, we've been meeting to sort of pick up the pieces and figure out where do we do now and what are the what are the priorities going forward. So like many couples at this stage in life, they had sold their home about five, six years ago, and they invested that capital. So your, the answer to your question in many cases is that somebody has owned a home, 
They've now uh, cashed in the value from that home, and it's that capital now invested that is designed to produce an income for right. them if they live to 105 or 110. And um, and so they were sort of on this path. They were they had decided to rent, so they didn't move into a retirement residence. So they they simplified their life, downsized, moved into a, a nice apartment, and they were renting. And um, so now. One passes away, she passes away, and the survivor we met uh, last week, and we're just talking about a whole bunch of things. So one question that came up was gifting. And, um, you know, it, it's, he felt, well, I should just gift my money now to the kids. Wouldn't that make sense? And so that was one question. Um, they had joint accounts. They had tax-free savings accounts. They had RIFs. Uh, and they began to sort of, we began to sort of sift through what are all the options for these various things. And then at the same time now, he's on his own. Mm -hmm. And the question came up and I asked him, are you going to stay here in this, in the apartment? Or are you thinking about some assisted living? Because right away already says, I'm not eating. Yeah. You know, uh, mm. meal preparation, um, just things like laundry and sure. cleaning and maintenance, ongoing maintenance now, which is all falling on him. I granted he's in a period of mourning, so that might change in time and it's probably too soon to make any decision. But, uh, at the end of the day, probably something's going to change. And, and they had actually talked about, maybe we need to move into something with some assisted living where the meals are provided mm -hmm. and ongoing, um, assistance. So, um, so the, the thought process was, and I'll give you a quick, quick background of the assets. They had a segregated fund. This is a mutual fund by an insurance company worth 500 grand. They had joint mutual funds of $30,000. They had joint bank accounts of $75,000. They had tax-free savings accounts each of $65,000 times two, so 130,000. And he still had a riff with a small amount, 25,000 left in it. Total assets, $760,000. And there were capital gains, there are capital gains, I should say, on that segregated fund, the $500,000 fund, about 50,000 of capital gains. And the mutual, the joint mutual fund had about $3,000. So about $53,000 of capital gains on their investments. So, and this is a key opportunity. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about how to deal with capital gains and joint accounts. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165 and take a peek at the website andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, .com. You can ask a question there via the listener inquiry button and as well listen to old archive shows as well we're talking about estate planning yeah and in, in the we were running through the scenario of a client of mine who passed away and just picking up the pieces after the fact and what are some of the key things you want to think about and one of the things that get miss gets missed a lot is on joint accounts so they each they each owned a these joint accounts and um, and joint accounts are pretty straightforward when someone dies. It's simply you provide a death certificate to the institution and the right of survivorship exists and that money rolls over to the uh, surviving spouse. Mm -hmm. Pretty slick. Um, there's no probate. There's no tax implications. But here's where the opportunity often gets missed. And this is particularly true in this case because mm -hmm. she died 
in the first two months of the year. Mm. And so you look at what was her income up until the date of death? Well, we looked at her annual income was about 21000 on her side of the ledger. Uh, so about seventeen fifty a month. So she's only earned $3,500 up to the date of death. Mm-hmm. And so would pay no tax. And so the opportunity then was in these joint accounts, instead of just rolling them over to him as the survivor, what we can elect to do is trigger the capital gains on her half right. of the account. Mm. And so in this case, there was $53,000 of gains. Uh, so $26,500 uh, each. And so it made sense to include that as her income for this year. And that means he doesn't have to pay tax on it in the future right. at his death. Yeah. And so, um, and this is a common problem where when you have two spouses, it's easy to split income and taxes can easily be reduced. But when there's now just one survivor and all the income is in one name mm-hmm. at their death, the tax man cometh. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, yeah. so, uh, so in this scenario, again, she'd earned about, um, uh, $3,500. So the good maximum. tax planning, by the way, dying in the first couple months. Of it the was year. good tax planning. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it is. I, Remember so, that, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're feeling a little off on New Year's Eve, yeah. just try and stretch it out yeah, to yeah. the first. There you go. There. <laughs> Big difference. <laughs> um, but um, so once you're over age sixty-five and you can you earn the age credit, which is an additional tax reduction for you. It gets clawed back as soon as your income goes over in 2018, $36,976. So we could increase her income right up to $36,976, and she would pay the least amount of tax in terms of her estate as possible. Mm-hmm. And so um, it, it, as we settle this estate, we're going to request that the institutions declare her half of the capital gains, which would be an extra $13,250 on her side of the of the ledger this year. Uh, so her total income would be about $17,000. But you know what? I looked at that and just at a quick glance, it will save him at least $1,000 of income tax on the future mm. re, uh, uh, collapse or the future cashing in of those investments, whether it's by choice, he gifts it, or whether he dies, right. we're going to save tax by doing it this way. So big one that gets overlooked, look to, particularly if, if you know someone, if they've died early in the year and you're dealing with their estate, look to trigger additional income through the capital gains or joint accounts. And that makes a lot of sense. As far as the others, um, the TFSAs, direct beneficiary, that just rolls over to him. But now it's important to change the beneficiary. So we must change the beneficiary to his three adult children mm-hmm. so that that's clean and, and simple at right. his death. Uh, his RIF, again, changed the beneficiary. It was his wife. Now it should be the three children. And, um, and finally, the next step was just the power of attorney. And I wanted to add the power of attorney onto the file. His oldest son is going to be sort of handling things for the most part, but he's still cognitive and still aware of what's going on. And um, so we looked at that. And there was some discussions because you've got to be careful. Sometimes people have what we call a springing power of attorney versus a general power of attorney. And a springing power of attorney means it's only effective once somebody has been deemed perhaps incompetent or incapable Mm -hmm. of making uh, financial decisions. And not that that's a huge issue, but generally I like to see the 
the, using the general power of attorney instead of a springing power of attorney because that means the, um, the POA, and get this case the son, is going to have to go through the process of getting a doctor to certify. Right. And that means he, they'll have to run him through <clears throat> tests, et cetera, before they can issue a documentation that he's certified and that the power of attorney would be then be uh, in force. And in this case, there were th- all three children were named as beneficiaries, uh, sorry, as power of attorneys. And that's problematic because, yeah, they're all in the area, but you know what? Some people are very interested in this stuff and mm-hmm. one isn't and one, you yeah. know, and so now every time you make a decision, all three have to come together and agree. So the next step will probably be, will they sign off and just allow the one to be the power of attorney? Right. But having the power of attorney in place now means that um, for him, if he decides he doesn't want to deal with this anymore, his finances, or he did become incapacitated, then uh, then the son can take over right away and it's seamless, no issues at all. And the final thing is we use segregated funds and segregated funds issued by insurance companies, the mutual funds, can you can name a beneficiary. So again, we're going to change the beneficiary because it was joint before and now it'll be just in his name. We'll name all three kids. And the final thing, which was gifting, he wanted to gift $100,000 to each of his kids right now. Beauty. And I said, <laughs> and the son said, well, I don't know if that makes sense. And I said, you know what? Let's wait mm-hmm. because uh, there's still a lot going on in your life. This is a big transition. Mm-hmm. You know, in the next six months, there's lots of time to figure that out. Yeah. They've always been generous at Christmas, gifting around 20000 a year mm-hmm. and uh, to grandchildren and their children. So we sort of uh, had a happy medium where we look. And the one concern I had was he had $75,000 in his bank account. And today the bank in the banking environment, when someone dies with that much cash in their bank account, they almost automatically require the will to be probated. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you want to have to go through, you've got a $760,000 estate and now you have to deal with a $75,000 account and Mm -hmm. that messes everything else up. So I said, why don't you gift 50 grand? 10,000 or 5,000 to each of the 10 great grandchildren, which you wanted to do. And uh, that brings your bank account down from 75 to 25. It gives you a nice cushion there in terms Mm -hmm. of an emergency reserve, but it deals with that issue about probate. And you like that idea. So we'll move forward with that. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are with us from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905-529-7165. And don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. So let's end the show on a positive note. Uh, <laughs> Valentine's, Valentine's Day is well over now. Yeah, right. <laughs> Six myths about getting a divorce. There you go. That, that's a good one. You know what? It's kind of interesting. We do with is the line battle axe in, in this at all, <laughs> or is it you know? Well, they they did. This is the G. This is the PG version. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. and it's kind of interesting. Andy and I come across almost every scenario um, that you know people, money, and people's lives go hand in hand, yep. regardless of you know divorce to estate planning to their RESPs for the kids to grandkids, you name it, and you know. Unhappy marriages are just part of it. It happens. And it's interesting, uh, you know, probably they say it's 50%. I don't know if that's high or low, but certainly there's a good percentage of our clients over the years that have gone through a divorce. Yeah. Okay. And um, so some of the things I've heard and and others have come across is uh, these are the top six. And number one is my spouse cheated on me. So the courts are going to be on my side. Hmm. 
Well, you know what? That's like that poor person that, uh, you know, signed the house over one month and got divorced the next. (laughs) Doesn't that apply here? (laughs) Unfortunately, you know, it's kind of funny. It used to be that way. Like years ago, like we're talking, I don't know how long ago. I never looked it up, but it it was, you know. I think it's before the 70s, before the big divorce laws changed. Right. Yeah. And so then it became a federal um, divorce act. It's a federal statute. And so this is right across Canada. They don't, it's a no fault divorce now system. And so I think that was Pierre Trudeau that brought that in, and, and rightfully wow. so. You know, mm-hmm. you, first of all, how do you prove stuff like this? It could make the lawyers go make even more money in divorces they already have, yeah. and also it's just it, it has no bearing on things. So people are going to get basically not their fair share based on an, an act that they did. So being unfaithful. So basically, at the end of the day, it has no uh, no bearing on the possessions in terms of the division or the childcare. Mm-hmm. Okay, so number two. My spouse won't sign anything, so therefore I can't get a divorce. Mm -hmm. And there's three ways you can get a divorce um, right after one year. And the most common one, you don't don't have to look at blame or anything else or safety. It's simply you lived apart for over a year, you can get a contested divorce. Mm -hmm. He or she does not have to sign anything. You go to this judge, they go through the forms, and quite often, they, the forms even get mailed there mm-hmm. and they still won't sign them. Yeah. And they bring all the facts to the judge and they do get signed. So again, once that year's done, it's kind of the grace period. You basically have, have to be living apart for over one year. Okay. Um, number three, we're just common law. So we, we don't have to worry about dividing assets and paying spousal support. Hmm. And I know Annie and I have talked about this a, a number of times, um, getting that cohabitational agreement. I know there's totally different laws for um, common law and people feel that, okay, I'm going to get away with this. I, I, you know, it's no problem. We were just living together and therefore she won't get my assets. Well, it's, it's a lot of gray area. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening goes to court a lot longer and they can start fighting over different things. Um, there's a three years in Ontario rule. Every province is different. So once you've gone three years in one day, you are now um, subject to having to um, split assets, mm-hmm. but particularly sp- splitting um, lifestyle. Right. So if you uh, you've lived together for over three years and you're making a million dollars a year, and you married a say a waitress, not making very uh, a good income, then therefore uh, you will be paying some spousal support for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so th- that part's fairly black and white. The assets aren't. At the end of the day, there is no matrimonial home rule, mm-hmm. unlike a marriage. Okay. A marriage is a matrimonial home. And it, it gets split regardless. But the other part, certainly um, a marriage agreement and, or a, a cohabitational agreement should be signed. In the case of common law, it's called a cohabitational agreement. Mm-hmm. Number four, I bought this house before I was married and therefore I get to keep it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way it is. Sure. Uh, just what's, as mine, a, what's mine is mine. and <laughs> <laughs> That would only be true if it's a rental property. And you're not living in it and you're not claiming it as your matrimonial home or, mm. or your personal residence. Mm. Okay. This is where that marriage contract has to be signed. So if you if you say, okay, I've got this million dollar home and my and my future wife or future husband, they've sold their house or, or moved from wherever they're living and they're moving in now, you got to put your, your uh, property, uh, you got to protect your property. Mm-hmm. Because <clears throat> let's say your wife did have a million dollar home and you have one, but you decide to move into yours. Well, 
at that point, any appreciation in her assets, because she's got a million dollars, is split 50-50 going forward. Mm-hmm. But that matrimonial home is split 50-50 the whole amount, not just the growth. So very important to get uh, this looked at. And when you're dealing with a fair uh, bit of money and a, and, a, and a house is a lot, I would definitely see a lawyer before you do this. Mm-hmm. Um, if I move, um, I'll lose the house in a divorce. And this happens a lot if, if, if I move out. People think they'll lose the house right, in the divorce. Yeah. And this ap- actually happens a lot in abusive relationships mm. where it says, well, I can't leave because I'll lose the house. Yeah. And that is not true at all. Mm-hmm. It's another asset. Yeah. They don't really, the courts do not care um, on who moved out first or any of that part. It has nothing to do with it. It's simply another asset. And finally, if we get divorced, I get to keep my pension and my ex gets, will keep hers or his. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pensions are assets. And therefore, if you say worked at DeFasco, or sorry, Stelco, and they have a pension, and, uh, and the husband was a teacher, mm-hmm. and they have a pension, they look at both assets, and they get them valued on, on terms of what they were worth yeah. at the time of, of marriage. And same with Canada Pension Plan. They take a look at the credits and during the marriage, and they'll split that also. So everything is considered an asset. Take the emotion out of it. It's 50-50. And certainly what you need to do if you have a lot of assets, see a lawyer and, and get some type of contract. And they will take the emotion out of it for you. <laughs> very well, <laughs> very <your> much. <laughs> That's it. All right. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. That's Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call them now at 905-529-7165. Leave a message. They will return your call. And don't forget to visit the website at andyanddon.com. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank we'll you, see, you see you next week. See you next week.